Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We are continuing a conversation that we've been having on and off over the last several months, uh, working through the uh, book of Ephesians, uh, looking to um, examine, to explore, as we head into this next season of what it means for us to be the church in Long Beach, kind of this um, almost architectural s- s- uh, script, that sketch, if you will, that Scripture has provided us as to how church really works. Um, and the book of Ephesians is uh, probably the preeminent one uh, that outlines really what God had in mind uh, and how it works at a very practical level. Uh, you know, uh, we've talked about this, that the, um, uh, Paul's letters are roughly divided in half. First half deals with theory, theology, uh, and the back half deals with it's kind of the now what. How does, how does this come down the mountain and work itself out into the fabric of everyday relationships? 
And so over the last uh, little while, in chapter 5 uh, of Ephesians, we've been looking at what it, what it means to be holy people, to be actually um, set apart, not for specialness, but for usefulness. Holiness is never about a glow. It's never about some kind of a, an oddity. Um, it's never about uh, a superiority at all. In fact, holiness uh, is the platform, the island, the stable place on which we stand to actually be useful in helping people who are drowning all around us. Without holiness, we have no place to stand. If the salt, Jesus says, has lost its salt, if the light is hidden, what, what's the point of it? Um, and, and Paul recognizes that that even can, can be theoretical, if you will, or individual. That is to say, it works itself out in, in individual morality and so on and so forth. But, but how does it work itself out, rubber hits the road, in everyday ordinary relationships? And particularly in the most intimate of our relationships, uh, specifically marriage. And so in chapter 5... Uh, he gets to that point. He has spent time just before this uh, challenging the church to pay attention to what's actually going on in the world, to take advantage of every opportunity, not to waste any time, not to obliterate consciousness by whatever means, uh, but to train a heart towards usefulness, towards holiness. And the passage that we look at this morning begins with a with a... Uh, a kind of a spiritual discipline, uh, and then fleshes out what that means. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll begin at verse 21, which is the bridge between what he's done before and what comes next. He starts this way, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, <clears throat> as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. So, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, you are to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hates their own body, but feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother, shall be united with his wife, and the two become one flesh. Now, this is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking primarily about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Um, it would be a mistake if you think that this is just about marriage. You'll notice that verse 21 suggests that this ought to mark the pattern of relationships that exists between all of us. And marriage is one microcosm within which it ought to take place and within which it is most difficult to take place. 
Um, so as we begin, you'll notice that this passage of Scripture begins at verse 21. Usually, and unfortunately, this passage, you may have heard this passage used in ways that are not true to the text, at least in my view. And you may disagree with me at the end. I realized after the first service that uh, some of what I was likely to say would be controversial and challenging for some of you who may have a different point of view on this, uh, on this passage of scripture. And so I'm very happy to talk with anybody afterwards uh, who may uh, have, a, have, a, have a different perspective. Um, but I think that what Paul is getting at here is the only way to save the world. And that is to say how we treat one another as an echo of what God intended in Genesis 1 and 2 is the only way forward. And if it doesn't work in this most intimate of relationships, husband and wife, wherever else is it going to work? So this is not just for husbands and wives and the rest of you have the morning off. This is take what you can glean from the microcosm of this most intimate of relationships and now start to work its way out into the pattern of relationships going forward. He begins with this challenging statement, submit yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. This is an echo of a a reality that is sketched for us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Uh, in which both stories of creation, you know that there are two different accounts of creation, and both of them, among other things, make the same point in terms of our relationship to one another, namely this, we are not built to exercise authority over one another. Humankind is not built. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, remember? Let us create humankind in our image, and let them rule over each other? No, over the fish and over the animals and over the rest of the creation. In other words, with a dependent relationship on God and an interdependent, mutually empowering relationship with each other, we can be the image of God to the rest of creation. That's Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2 makes it even more explicit vis-a-vis the relationship between men and women, and particularly husband and wife. Remember the story, Genesis chapter 2-7. By the way, if you want to get more content on this, uh, uh, we've talked about it the last three weeks at, in the Soul Care class, and you, that should be up on the, on the church's website if that's of interest to you uh, to, to follow up on that. That said, Genesis chapter 2, remember, it's not good for the man to be alone. It doesn't work. It's not functional. And God's solution is I will make him a helper that is suitable for or that corresponds to him. So the the word helper there sounds in English like a diminutive, an assistant, kind of like hamburger helper. Uh, and, And... And unfortunately, that's how often that has been heard. It's not good for the man to be alone. He needs just a little bit of help to function appropriately. That word is the Hebrew word etzer. It's used 20 times in the Old Testament, two in chapter two. So 18 times in the rest of the Old Testament, of those 18 times, 17 of them, it refers to God. Listen to what he's saying. It is not good for the man. It doesn't work. Remember the good from Genesis 1. It works. Genesis 2 doesn't work for the man to be alone. I will make him 
a being who will be to him as I am to him, enabling his very existence. That's what helper means. So the first attempt to solve that problem is the animals. And at the end of that creative day, the conclusion is reached. There was not found for the man a helper suitable for him, one who would be to him as I am to him. There's not found one like that. And why not? Because when the animals are brought to the man, he names them, and in naming them exercises authority over them. Any being over which the man can or does exercise authority is not a being that is capable of solving, solving the not good problem. So in these, both of these passages, the point is made, the relationships between person and person, between men and women, between husband and wife particularly, can never be about authority, who's in charge, who gets the final say. As soon as it becomes that, you're in Genesis chapter 3 marriage which as it turns out is not such a great place to be because it's conceptualized and framed with a independence from God leading to insecurity, fear, shame, hiding, blame, and the misuse of the power we have created to be the image of God. We're built for power and we will misuse it because of insecurity, fear, and shame. And we will use it in one of two primary ways. If we see ourselves in the superior position, we will use our personal power to dominate others in the acquisition of more power. If we see ourselves in the inferior position, we will use our personal power to manipulate others in the acquisition of more power so that we can become dominant. Neither of these is how we are supposed to relate to one another, period, let alone in marriage, right? So what is power for? Genesis chapter 1 tells us we are to use our power as the image of God, as God used his personal power, that is to release with capacity and without control his precious and beloved, his creation. A shorthand way of saying that is empowerment. So not manipulation, not domination, but elevation. Does that make sense? So this is the image, Paul echoes this and when he gets to this. How do we get this back? Well, it's because of the loss of our dependent relationship on God that everything went to hell in chapter 3, right? So how do we begin? We begin with the restoration of dependent relationship with God. Reverence for, no, go back, sorry. Reverence for Christ or submission to Christ. We reconnect the kite to the kite string and the kite string to the ground, so it's anchored rather than blowing around as trash in the wind. Does that make sense? And then we have capacity to submit ourselves to one another, to use our personal power not to acquire more or generate an outcome, but to serve one another, to bring ourselves into creative alignment with one another, empowering alignment with one another, because that's what the word submit means. Submit has gotten a bad rap because it's been so poorly used. Uh, it's a military term in its origin. It means literally to line up under, and it has to do with choosing 
to follow a general into battle. That's what it ultimately means. It's a good word. Um, if your marriage functions along the lines of the US military, that might be an appropriate definition for the term. If, however, it does not, and I suspect it probably doesn't, you prefer to yourself, think of yourselves as family for some reason. If it does not, then submission takes its secondary meaning, which means voluntary mutual alignment in love. That's what submission means. It's like merging, except we don't do that very well here on our freeways. But assuming we did, that's really the idea. How do you, how do you, how, do, how can, Ecclesiastes says this, Proverbs says this, how can, how can two walk unless they be agreed? Right? So the idea that he's got here is both of us, husband and wife, have our hearts set on Christ. We are submitted to him. We are in alignment with him. And as we grow close to him, as we follow him, inevitably we find ourselves merging with another one like us. That's the image that he has here in chapter 5, verse 21. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for or in submission to Christ. That's the only thing, by the way, that makes it possible. If we are not both submitted to Christ, then we can't submit well to one another because we are heading in different directions. This is why Paul says it's not wise to be unequally, uses this language, yoked together. You can't merge in mutual empowerment if you're both heading in different directions. Merging, submission occurs when you are both in alignment heading in a similar direction. And that's what he invites us into, right? Now, here's where the problem occurs. Most of your translations begin at verse 22, the paragraph, which says this. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. You can see if your translational paragraph begins there, how people might be mistaken or forgiven for misunderstanding the nature of submission that he's calling to. You will notice here in this particular version, uh, the word submit yourselves is in italics. Can you see that from there? What that means is those words don't appear in the original Greek text of Ephesians 5.22. So if you happen to have a version of the Bible with those words in it, take an indelible black marker, a Sharpie preferably, and cross them out because it has been pernicious in the damage as it is called, caused to relationships between men and women. It does not say, wives, submit yourselves to your husband. It says, wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, if you happen to know English at all, you will have noticed that we are now missing something rather essential in a sentence, namely a verb. So if one wishes to acquire a verb when one is missing one, where does one think one might acquire such a verb? Verse 21. Let's read it top to bottom. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's the sentence. So who submits to whom in marriage? Wives submit to husbands. Husbands submit to wives. And both submit to Christ. In exactly the opposite of that order. Both submit to Christ. 
then husbands to wives, then wives to husbands. Why? Because in the Ephesian culture, men had all the power. It was natural for this second paragraph. This is a no-duh paragraph. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband. Well, of course, that's what we see worked out. There's a hierarchy. There's a structure that we understand to be in place. There's, there's God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, then men and women, husbands and wives, boy children, girl children, dogs, cats, gerbils, goldfish. Right? It's the hierarchy of authority. I had to fight myself to get cats in there because I don't think they actually belong. Um, I think... I think they may be underneath the goldfish, but what do you know? Um, um, that said, please notice how insulting that understanding is to the nature of Trinity, which marriage is intended to echo. And not just marriage, but our relationships with one another. Let us create humankind to be what? Our image. What's the our it's the nature of Trinity. It's the nature of Father, Son, and Spirit in mutually interdependent, non-dominant, non-manipulative love preferring one another. It's the perichoresis, the dance of mutual submission into which we are invited. So is it appropriate for us to say wives are supposed to submit themselves to their husbands? Yes, it is appropriate to say that. Here's the question. What is the nature of the submission or the nature of the relationship that makes that appropriate? You'll notice that he uses an interesting metaphor. He uses it in various places in Ephesians, but here is where it comes to full force. Husband is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church, his body. So notice, not head as in CEO, not head as in boss, but head as in body. These are mutually interdependent most of the time. Neither of them function particularly well without the other one. There has to be a chosen alignment head to body. Notice that in Paul's day, the head was not in charge of the body. It wasn't the seat of will or affection. The heart was. So he's not using language that says husbands are to be the bosses. In fact, that is a complete undermining of what God intended in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Nobody gets to be the boss. Nobody gets to be in charge. Nobody gets to be the one who has all the power. In fact, what happens with the power you have? What are you supposed to do with it? You're supposed to use it to serve your partner. Right? So the orientation is not of boss to employee, but of organic head in mutual empowerment to body. And he invites us into that reality. And please notice why. We'll get to that in a sec. I forgot where I was. So that is the challenge for, for, for wives 
relative to this particular, particular concern. And he, Paul is, is not, not shy about calling uh, wives to that kind of submission. But please notice, what is it that makes it possible for a wife to do such a thing? Next verse lets us know. Husbands, you are to love your wives in exactly the same way as Christ loved the church. Oh, you're not clear on how that was. Well, let me tell you. He laid his life down for her. Apparently, it's easy to submit to a dead man. Do you see why this is important? Because we are so terrified of the misuse of power, the only thing that makes submission possible is where the one who has all the power has died in the service of the one who has none. That's what he's inviting us into. Do you see how this, I think, is going to change the world? And candidly, this is, this is what saved my marriage. Seven years in, our marriage was over. And by the grace of God and the forgiveness of Judy, I had three years to figure out how to be married. This text saved my marriage. Because I started to realize, oh, my orientation to Judy is not, here's a list of things you need to do so we can have a happy marriage. My orientation to Judy is, how can I serve you? How can I lift you? How can I empower you? How can I get out of the way so your dreams are accomplished? How can I lay my life down so that your life flourishes? Because you'll notice why Jesus did this. He did this to make her holy, having cleansed her washing uh, uh, through the word, to present to himself the church in all her beauty, in, uh, as a radiant church, in all her loveliness. So here's the image that just almost causes me to weep every time I sit with it for any length of time. Here is Jesus, the single most powerful uh, being in the universe who lays aside all of his power for one purpose and one purpose only. That is that you and I, his church, might thrive, might come to life. Not, not just simply to life, but to life with beauty and power and radiance and glory. He lays aside his dreams, his ambitions, his hopes in service of the church. And says, guys, I hope you wrote that down. Because that's how you're to love your wife. That is the only thing that makes it possible for the church to submit to Jesus. And for wives to submit to their husbands. Does that make sense? And please notice, the church follows Jesus' lead in this. The church doesn't go first in submission. Jesus goes first in submission. Jesus loved us, not because we were lovely. In fact, Paul tells us, we were still his enemies when Christ died for us. So this is the model that we are invited into in our interpersonal relationships at the large level, but also at the microscopic level of our marriages, microcosmic level of our marriages. 
We are, we are to lay our lives down in having submitted to Christ, which, by the way, is the only thing that makes it possible. Why? Because if I don't submit myself to Christ, I'm going to be driven by shame. I'm going to be driven by fear. I'm going to be driven by insecurity. If my identity is not locked and loaded in who I am in him, I can't do this because I will be using whatever power I have to grab a hold of my life. But if my life is hidden with God in Christ, then I can risk loving my wife, even when she doesn't love me back the way I think she ought to, even when it doesn't work, even when she's on a different page than I am in this particular matter. Because her love for me, while appreciated, hard to say, but is not necessary for me to know who I am in Christ. Now that's really hard but it's really true as well. So we are invited in this hard place, in this challenging place, to imitate Christ. And remember, because this is mutual, even though in the Ephesian culture it was men who held the power and therefore the first ones who laid it down, in our culture in Long Beach, Power moves fairly fluidly in a relationship between a husband and a wife, between men and women. Sometimes women have power, and what are they to do it when they have it? Hang on to it for dear life. No, they are to lay their power down in service of their husbands, in the elevation of their husbands, in the building up of their husbands. This is the only way forward if the goal is to save the world, which, as it turns out, is the goal. Notice, not a happy marriage, that's not the goal. A holy marriage, that's the goal. Why? Because that's the only kind of marriage that will save the world. Why? Again, because that is the microcosm, that the paradigm, if you will, that helps us to learn how to engage one another in other kinds of relationships. So he, he invites us uh, into, this, into this text, into this awareness uh, with this, this same way that husbands ought to love their body, wives as they do their own bodies. If, 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 there's never a moment that I don't know how to treat Judy. All I got to do is ask one of two questions, and they'll both get me the same way. How would I want her to treat me? Not how is she treating me? but how would I want her to? Or how did God in Christ treat me? And do those, one of those things. So it's not that I don't know what to do, it's that I don't feel like doing it. Right? At the end of the day, it's why, and why don't I feel like doing it? Because I'm weak, I'm insecure, I'm afraid, I'm ashamed. It's, it, it's, that's what tanked our marriage in the first place. I think you can understand where, this, where I'm coming from. It took me 25 years, even after having been forgiven and learning to be married again, it took me 25 years to celebrate the gift that God has given me in my wife. I realized that I am married to one wicked smart woman who knows things and knows things in ways that I have no way of comprehending at all. None. And for 25 years, I resisted that because weak, insecure, ashamed, afraid. I can't let her see that 
I can't let her think that. Ah! <laughs> Anybody recognize that tone of voice? You know exactly what I'm talking about. And Paul just says, really? Really? So about 25 years, and I, I realized this, in, in, in then for the last 15 or so, it's been pretty good. Because I don't have to be right. I don't have to be right. I don't have to get my own way. I don't have to get stuff done the way I want it to get done. I don't have to. I don't have, I don't have to. And guess what's happened? Now it's safe for her to come out and play. Now it's safe for her to say, well, I'm not sure either. Because when Muhammad meets the mountain, which characterizes often the first stages of our relationship, both are, are terrified to let the other see weakness. And when one opens and absorbs the insecurity and fear, that gradually can open the flower and the flourishing of the beauty of submission. Now, who goes first in that? Well, it depends on who has the power. Who wants to be most like Christ <laughs> in the marriage? Because here's the problem. I always know how she ought to behave. And she always knows how I ought to behave. And neither of us is each other's business. I'm not going to give an account to Jesus for how Judy treated me. Which is unfortunate because I've got a fairly long report. <laughs> I am, however, going to give an account for how I treated her. Did you love her the way I loved you? Did you love her the way she doesn't always deserve to be loved? Not because she's lovely, but because you have become a lover. You'll notice that's how Jesus loves us, right? He doesn't love the church because the church is lovely. He doesn't love the church because the church reciprocates. He doesn't love the church because the church always gets it right. He loves the church because he's a lover. That's what I want. That's what I want for us. The world does not need more examples of quid pro quo love. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We've seen way too much of that. And where does it all end? Genesis chapter 3. Manipulation and domination will always win out. We get invited instead to be part of a transformative culture in our marriages. He says, finally, at the end of the day, it's for this reason that a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and the two become one. That's how that merging to oneness is enabled. We leave our previously defining relationships and we reframe ourselves in alignment to Christ and in shared mutual merging with one another. He says, I'm talking primarily about Christ and the church. However... And then he switches language just a little bit because Paul is a master psychologist. What do women, wives need most from their husbands? They need to know that they're loved. 
that this man is willing not just to die for them, but to live with them, which as it turns out is harder. And what do husbands need from their wives? Respect. They need to know. A guy can go a long way in life knowing that his wife has got his back, that she's in his corner. We don't need any more critics in chief in our marriages. You walk out the front door of your home and husbands and wives both get pummeled with critique all day. Home needs to be a place where we have set aside any words. Paul's going to use this language. Uh, He did it already in Ephesians chapter 5. That don't build up, that aren't wholesome. So we, and of course, because it is mutual, I think it's appropriate for, 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 for husbands to respect their wives, wives to love their husbands. But nonetheless, the invitation is profound. And I think you all know where the altar call is going with this. Because the altar call is not what happens here tonight, today. And I'm hopeful that some of you will feel the need to lean into some of this. Really, though, the altar call is how you treat your spouse this afternoon. How you treat, on the basis of that microcosm, co-workers tomorrow morning. It's really easy to treat people the way you think they deserve. Jesus invites us to model a different way. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.